when black people assert their rights, there's this like backlash that, oh, okay, well, the country's falling apart, crime is really high, et cetera, et cetera. But really, when Johnson called the war on crime, violent crime in the US was lower than it was in the early 20th century. And crime levels had been going down since prohibition. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee has released the following comprehensive update on the national situation following the prison strike. The extent of repression and retaliation by prison authorities against suspected participants in this year's nationwide prison strike continues to emerge slowly. The National Lawyers Guild Prisoners Legal Advocacy Network, NLGPLAN, has received additional details from 12 states, including widespread, quote, staff-perpetrated physical abuse, destruction of prisoners' personal property, theft and destruction of prisoners' legal property, and obstruction of prisoners' access, e.g., to process grievance forms, unquote. Scattershot retaliation against jailhouse lawyers, including preventing them from jailhouse lawyering by placing them into solitary confinement under false pretenses. Preemptive lockdown and segregation of thousands of prisoners, Quote, in the absence in many cases of any apparent indication that the prisoners were involved in the nationwide strike. Unquote. Remarkable nationwide consistency in correctional systems talking points as cited in the media. Prison officials in areas where intense repression was reported have staunchly refused to acknowledge prison strike activities in their facilities following a plan distributed by the American Correctional Association after the 2016 strike. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, testimony in a habeas corpus application has confirmed that 40 people held in a close supervision unit have been confined to their cells 23 hours a day on one occasion for a continuous 36-hour period for several weeks. This action comes after 10 members of prison staff refused to work in the unit and commenced during the nonviolent strike previously reported. The Times Union in Jacksonville, Florida, reported that two letters from its journalists asking about the strike were rejected by officers at the Okeechobee Correctional Institution on the grounds that they were, quote, a threat to security, order, or rehabilitative objectives of the correctional system or the safety of any person, unquote. Meanwhile, severe restrictions have been imposed on correspondence and reading materials in Pennsylvania and Ohio following claims that contact with synthetic cannabinoids left dozens of prison staff sick. This theory has been broadly rejected by medical professionals. A past president of the American College of Medical Toxology said, quote, In a word, it's implausible. One thing we know about synthetic cannabinoids is that they don't cause the effects these folks are having, and certainly not by the route that they're being exposed. The symptoms are much more consistent with anxiety, unquote. People in prison, their families and supporters, fear that the changes, costing tens of millions of dollars, will effectively shut down groups like Books Through Bars in those states, as well as expose client-attorney communications to surveillance. At Indiana State Prison, whistleblower Aaron McDonald is now under a one-year non-contact visitation status in retaliation for exposing the inhumane conditions and rampant abuse going on inside. 
His mother, Leslie Hernandez, is facing bogus charges for her outside organizing and support for her son. IDOC Watch is monitoring the situation and preparing the next move to defend them both. The crackdown against incarcerated activists in Youngstown, Ohio has intensified. Imam Sadiq Hassan, a prison leader on death row following the 1993 uprising in Lucasville, Ohio, received a one-year phone restriction and security-level hike, while multiple supporters were permanently banned from visiting any Ohio prisons. Officials at the Supermax, where Hassan is held, have also engaged in collective punishment by increasing visitation restrictions, especially targeting organizer Greg Curry. Prosecutor Mark Pepmeyer also filed motion to set an execution date for Hassan's friend Keith Lamar, who was also falsely convicted following the uprising. This motion came shortly after the strike, but Lamar was not involved in the strike organizing. In nearby Toledo, Ohio, David Easley, James Ward, and Matt Hingston engaged in another hunger strike September 14th to raise up the 10 prison strike demands in protest to their own isolation after the August 21st strike and fight for proper mental health treatment for their fellow incarcerated comrades. In order to most effectively capture the energy that's been generated during the national prison strike, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak has established the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. The coalition aims to include 400-plus groups and organizations that endorse the national prison strike, as well as individuals who've signed on in solidarity with prisoners. The coalition is committed to the achievement of all prisoners' demands beyond the strike dates. The coalition will be led by incarcerated organizers who relay updates to coalition members on at least a bi-weekly basis. The strategy moving forward will include outside members supporting different forms of prisoner-led resistance. At this time, JLS is focused on informing policymakers about the national prison strike and has requested that the coalition collect signatures and send letters to members of Congress on state and federal levels. To date, the online petition has collected well over 30,000 signatures and has sent thousands of letters demanding that prisoners' human rights be met. While reporters and supporters are eager to know, no plans have been solidified and no dates have been released for a national prison strike next year. In the coming months, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak will be leading resistance by relaying actions through the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. Supporters, as well as reporters, are encouraged to join the coalition in order to stay informed about JLS's next steps. We look forward to seeing the outcomes of JLS strategy leading collective action from the inside in pursuit of each of the demands. As the months continue, actions progress and results materialize, JLS will be able to give more informed details about future events that best respond to the nation's desperately volatile criminal justice climate. We'll have updates on Greg Curry and Keith Lamar on next week's episode. In the following interview, Elizabeth Hinton sketches the relationship between the civil rights movement, urban uprisings, and the beginning of the war on crime, with a focus on the Harlem riot of 1964 and the 1965 Watts Rebellion, which was triggered by police brutality and became a key law and order talking point. She then moves through a range of problems within the black power movement, focusing on overlooked experiences in the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement in Detroit and Huey Newton's later reflections on the Black Panthers. She also focuses attention on the FBI Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO, and its role in breaking down black power organizations by spreading fear and conflicts inside and between them, as, for example, in the conflict between the Panthers and United Slaves Organization, or US. For background, the Watts Rebellion was a five-day riot starting in Watts, California in August 1965. The initial trigger was a traffic stop of two young black men, Marquette Fry and his little brother Ronald, which developed quickly into a brawl. 
Within hours, thousands of residents became involved in violent conflict with law enforcement, and Watts saw widespread looting and property destruction. Gerald Horn, of the University of Houston, writes that the rebellion eventually amounted to an estimated $200 million in damages and involved 35,000 active rioters and 72,000 close spectators who faced off against 16,000 LAPD, state police, and National Guardsmen. The rebellion ultimately saw 34 deaths and 4,000 arrests, with thousands injured. Deaths, injuries, and arrests nearly all from within the city's black population. Donna Murch, professor of history at Berkeley, writes that the contemporary assessment of whether the events in Watts constituted a riot or a rebellion hinged on whether or not a clear pattern could be seen in the actions of the crowd, and points to Gerald Horn's definitive book, Fire This Time, The Watts Uprising in the 1960s, which argues that loose structures of organization emerged in the looting and destruction of city infrastructure. Whites owned nearly all of the businesses that demonstrators attacked, and, tellingly, those with reputations for fair pricing and ties to the community stood untouched. In either case, rebellion or riot, Merch notes that, quote, the vicious backlash by the state, law enforcement, and the National Guard anticipated the rise of mass incarceration and the expansion of the modern carceral state in the decades to come, unquote. In this interview, Hinton starts off by telling us about the Harlem Riot of 1964, which was a key starting point for other waves of disruption through the 1960s, including Watts. Hinton released her celebrated history, From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, two years ago. You can hear her talk about this book in KiteLine episodes 63 and 64. She continues to research the linkages between state counterinsurgency programs and the maintenance of mass incarceration. Here's Elizabeth. A 15-year-old, this is kind of like what sets everything off, a 15-year-old in, in Harlem was killed, an unarmed 15-year-old, familiar story today, killed by a police officer. And then a bunch of students from the school went to protest his death. And then the police, more police were called to the scene to police the protest, and that of course inflamed the students and then more community members came out and then it escalates into like a four-day what what journalists and policymakers call the riot but which you know we call an uprising or a rebellion mm-hmm. and that's the trajectory of you know of, of a lot of these encounters what starts with two brothers who were pulled over by a LAPD officer and then his mother comes to the scene and then the community starts observing the stop and then everybody kind of get and, and so it starts with these incidents of police and usually it is in response to the policing of ordinary everyday activity and of course in 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 low income black urban communities at this time the police are like one of the front lines and aggressive lines of the state and so that's kind of a proxy for, again, all of these other larger socioeconomic grievances that are really at the heart of what the unrest is. And then in, in, in most of the incidents, the uh, rebellion turns from kind of attacks on police to the destruction of, um, of exploitive and exclusionary institutions in operating in low-income urban communities where most residents don't actually own um, the, the stores and the, you know, th- that they're forced to shop at. Or, you know, um, their apartments are run or other properties in the community are run by slum landlords. And, and so it's also a response to that. The way that we talk about crime and incarceration and, and crime control policies today is that they are a response to actual crime problems on the ground. And so 
the idea is, the narrative is, that Johnson called the war on crime in the 1960s and we get the war on drugs in the 1970s and 80s because crime is out of control and it's at an all-time high. In 1965, when Johnson called the war on crime, and he was the first president to call for the war on crime and begin the National Crime Control Program, many people think it's Nixon or Reagan, it was Johnson, and this is at the height of the Civil Rights Revolution and this is at the height of progressive social change in, the, in, the, in this country. And conservatives had been saying ever since the civil rights movement started taking off that all of a sudden law and order had broken down. You know, when black people assert their rights, there's this like backlash that, oh, okay, well the country's falling apart, crime is really high, et cetera, et cetera. But really when Johnson called the war on crime, violent crime in the US was lower than it was in the early 20th century. And crime levels had been going down since prohibition. What had changed in the 1960s, beginning in 64, and the kind of this smaller wave of unrest that the nation experienced in Harlem, Philadelphia, Rochester, Chicago, is that black, low-income black communities began to erupt, and they began to rebel, and they began to rise up. And this is something that escalated throughout every single summer of Johnson's presidency. So after the 60, the wave of unrest in 64, Johnson called the war on crime in March 65. And this began the federal investment in state and local law enforcement. And it, and the, the, so the Watts rebellion that summer in July of 65 really became what I describe in the book as kind of like the first battle of the war on crime because Johnson had already called it. Um, but it really, and, and we see the deployment, this kind of militarized deployment uh, the National Guard and lots of um, citizen fatalities that we don't talk about, rampant police brutality. And the images of Watts became really sensationalized and really kind of justified the policies that Johnson had already been, the Johnson administration had already put in place, the beginning of the militarization of police forces, the, the kind of support of um, a new level of patrol and surveillance and targeted low-income black and Latino communities. And so Watts kind of sold that and sensationalized and made real for the American public these arguments about crime being at all-time high, crime being a problem. The new kind of crime that did emerge in the 60s is this kind of mass incidence of civil, um, civil disorder, unrest, rebellion. And even Johnson officials, because my research is based in the White House Central Files of every presidential administration from Kennedy to Reagan. And they recognized that unemployment, you know, they would have conversations like, oh, well, we've done these interviews and we, we, we know that unemployment is really one of the major causes of the disorder. And, we, and essentially, the disorders were rooted in the very same grievances as the mainstream civil rights movement at that time, which was for jobs, which was for um, equal access, which was for better education, which was for decent housing, the more kind of socioeconomic thrust of the civil rights movement, these were being expressed in these incidents of collective violence. And instead of saying, okay, well, if we want to prevent this from happening in the future, let's overhaul urban public schools. Let's invest in a job creation program. Instead, that is what the logic is. Okay, well, in order to prevent further rebellion, we're just going to put more police in the streets. When if they would have looked at the trajectory of the rebellions themselves, they all began with the incident of, most of them began with the incident of police brutality and which escalates into something else. Yeah. And um, so it's just, it, it's, it's like the misguided logic of our domestic policies and how we respond to 
social problems in this country. You know, the trend that got federalized and that got forced on states is this kind of over-policing and under-protection of the most marginalized and isolated communities where it's the sense that like certain groups of people need to be, certain groups of people who, I mean, this is always the question, this is what their blinds have to do with. Even, even you know, th this is why we get like the first mini mass incarceration after emancipation, which is like the question of the U.S., which is what are we gonna do with free black people? This group that can always potentially rebel this group that has actually a lot of collective power and is closely situated in or near some of the the kind of most fundamental institutions of our society and so again you so see you get this you get this expansion of citizenship after slavery you get this expansion of citizenship during the civil rights movement and then this like new clamp down and new level of surveillance what's interesting is and this is part of what i'm going to talk about today is the johnson administration i think because it is the, the era of these urban uprisings is primarily interested in, in um, militarizing police forces. And this is actually, a lot of people talk about and, and kind of explain the militarization of the police in Ferguson that, that we saw kind of at a national level. People were like, oh my gosh, what is the Ferguson Police Department doing with an armored vehicle? And they said, oh, well, this is, you know, this is the result of the war on terror, or maybe this is the result of um, kind of interventions during the Reagan administration, but the process of um, giving surplus military weapons to police departments begins in the Johnson administration um, in the context of Vietnam, right? So the John, you know, the Johnson administration is primarily kind of concerned with facilitating the omnipresent surveillance of targeted communities, um, and and the idea is that patrol that basically like integrating police officers into as many facets of urban life in these communities as possible and, and, and basically, you know, facilitating a constant level of surveillance within social programs, within housing projects, on the streets, in urban public schools, um, will prevent, will identify suspects and prevent another kind of episode of unrest from, ha from happening. And then in the Nixon administration, um, especially because, I mean, part of it is logical, right? If you're putting more police on the street, you're gonna have more police contacts, you're gonna have more arrests, you're gonna have more people in the court system, you're gonna have more people in prison. And so Nixon really begins the targeted and intentional expansion of the prison system. So the, the kind of the, the, that project moves from one of policing, and it's not that the policing project isn't ongoing, but there also needs to be, um, in terms of like containment or what to do with the kind of consequences of having that kind of a police force operating in certain communities is to remove people from those communities and put them in prison. And this is also, of course, during the era of deindustrialization. So the, the kind of the expansion of the prison system, particularly in rural areas, really serves as a band-aid and like a job creation measure for many Americans when domestic manufacturing shifted overseas. In fact, the criminal justice and security industry is kind of the major American industry after the decline of domestic manufacturing. And I came 
at this topic from Black Studies, and so my, my master's thesis was on the Dodge was on Drum, which is the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit, and kind of like organizing auto workers under the the principle of Black Power, and it kind of led to all of these larger structural questions, and also this gap of like how do we get from this moment of Black Power, where in, in Drum's case and the League's case, they're organizing workers at the point of production with the power to shut down or to cause serious damage to the everyday functioning of American capitalism. How do we get from that moment to mass incarceration? And so it was kind of out of that, out, out of doing some of that work that I came to this topic for my dissertation. One of the reasons why I came to this topic after looking at drum and black power organizations is like, and I think drum especially in the league, especially compared to the black power organizations that are kind of in the canon is that this really was a moment of revolutionary possibility. And I think the state recognized that. How do you respond to that long term and how do you prevent that revolutionary possibility from, from bubbling again? I think one of the kind of trajectory, and part of this is mythology, but I think part of this is a history that lays out that shift from black power to mass incarceration is the the shooting at UCLA in, in 19, early 1969 of, um, of Bunchy Carter and Nathan Huggins by, they were both Black Panthers, by members of the US organization, Ron Karenga's organization. And the kind of, and, and so the, the, the war between the organizations was orchestrated by Cointel Pro, so federal agents. One of the things that's kind of spooky about Black Power in the state too is that, I mean, in all of the organizations, including DRUM, and the league, there are informants. So what is it even, what, what is it saying about, and that's not talking about, that's not saying the politics aren't right, but that like we haven't really reckoned with the fact that um, much of this history and these organizations were shaped by federal agents. Like one of the things that was spooky for me being in the archives of DRUM is that a lot of the founders um, in the mid-60s, a couple of years before the Detroit Rebellion in 67, and they founded the organization, they had a, uh, a hunt club, so they had like a rifle club. This was actually with the, the, Henry, the, Milton, the Henry brothers who formed the Republic of New Africa. They would all get together and shoot guns and, you know, prepare for the revolution. And the crazy thing was that in the archives, there were FBI... FBI agents were at the founding meeting of the Fox and Will Plunk Club. How do we reconcile that? So the FBI orchestrated this war in L.A. between us and the Panthers. It ends up with this shootout, and it's, it's a struggle over who's going to control the Black Studies program at UCLA. And the mythology is that th this shooting eventually led to the, the dissolution of the Panthers, which really kind of come to the fore with the premiere of the SWAT team in, in the country, but really in this, like, kind of final assault against the Panther headquarters in LA. And the, the kind of lore is that, you know, in this kind of a, seemingly apolitical vacuum, you get the rise of the Crips and the Blood. So many of the former Panther members joined the Crips and many of the former Us members joined the, the Bloods. So there's an interesting connection there between like, how does this external violence, these ideas of self-defense, these ideas of revolution, and the kind of encounters or battles with law enforcement authorities we see in the kind of height of the black power movement, how does that in the kind of vacuum of, um, or the, the disinvestment from the war on poverty and social welfare programs, how does that then 
morph or transition into the kind of internal violence that we see in what people call you know gang warfare and the high homicide rates in in certain communities and this is the other question if the federal government was able to take out the panthers and many black power organizations why do we still have how, how come they haven't been able to take out the gangs these are real questions. I mean, that question about that transition from external to internal violence is part of what I see my book as contributing to, but what I'm also committed to uncovering in my future work. Because I think that's one of the key questions in terms of understanding the nature of some of the, 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 the response to radical social change and protests and kind of the nature of inequality and oppression in the United States today. Huey gets a bad rap, even as we're beginning to understand all of the really important social work the Black Panthers did, programs that looked like what the federal government was offering in the war on poverty, really, um, but that were seen as like the greatest threat to the United States because it's like run by black people giving kids free breakfast instead of federally approved social workers. But anyways, but he writes about how federal agents really orchestrated this rift between him and Eldridge Cleaver and how they using like fake cartoons and mail and fake notes really escalated this war between the Panthers and the US organization. So it's interesting too that like even with Carr and, and Huey in his dissertation, I don't think he talks about that, but he talks about Eldridge and how like they almost came to blows over stuff that given the freedom of it, you know, when, when, the, when the Coins of Pearl was discovered, I mean, can you imagine if you're Huey Newton and you realize, wow, I mean, now we know that the Coins of Pearl mission was basically to destroy the Panthers but if you don't I mean you have a sense that there's feds in your organization and then to see that like and to read the documents of everything they did to kind to try to destroy you undermine you and create rifts within the movement the thing is that we've been so <laughs> we've been you know like we have been successful in letting and allowing that to happen and so part of it I think the challenge for the next movement is how do we keep out informants and how do we prevent this kind of intergroup struggle? Mass incarceration itself is what kind of allows and gave rise to what we're seeing on the outside. That kind of, I mean, I'm most familiar with the California system, um, but you know, the kind of racial segregation that exists and the gang warfare that exists and the regional warfare that exists is necessary in order for the guards to maintain order again. Again, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but it has to do with like the same kind of like splits I'm talking about that prevent real movements from happening. If every, if, if those divisions, if somehow we were able to transcend those divisions and people were able to come together, we would be unstoppable. But it, one of the things I write about in the book too is that you know essentially the ways that the federal government, you know, from SWAT teams to the the kinds of raids that we see against Black Panthers during the Nixon administration, eventually those spread to, th those Those are the techniques that are deployed for the remainder of the 70s, 80s, and beyond. And so it's, it's almost like the practice for the kind of widespread systemic strategies that law enforcement authorities use for the remainder of the 20, 20th century and into the 21st kind of begin with the assault on black power organizations and particularly the Black Panthers. 
This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at kiteline at wfhb.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. You can follow us on all social media platforms by searching for KiteLine Radio or find us on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.